Hey guys, Thefalos Most Excellent here again, as always, and thanks for tuning in to another video. And in this one, I actually want to talk about a pretty interesting topic, that is the Mark of the Beast from the Book of Revelation. And I want to discuss what I think it is, and what I don't think it is, and some other issues relating to it. And if you're a longtime viewer of the channel, you know I like to take obscure topics like this to the Bible and use it to bring clarity to the issue, because I think one of the biggest mistakes people make when interpreting prophetic passages of scripture like this is instead of putting their ear to the Bible and digging deep for the answer, they actually take the easy route of looking around them in the modern world and trying to find something that they can make fit with it, right? But that's never a good interpretive method to approach God's word with. And so I actually think one of the main reasons, though, that people tend to do this is because it seems like every generation of Christians is absolutely certain that they're living in the very last of the last days and that the Antichrist will appear at any moment. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not really against the idea that we're in the end times or that the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast aren't, like, right around the corner. It's just, I want some actual concrete biblical prophecy fulfillment first before I state emphatically that the end has come, you know? Because, I mean, just think about how many Christians before us believed this exact same thing, and they were all wrong. Because that's like every generation of Christians ever. Because for like every group of Christians that we can find writings for, they almost all seem to think that they were living in the final days, and many of them even had some idea of who the Antichrist was at the time and whatnot. But, I mean, some of them had even better reason to think they were in the end times than we do, when you think about it. Like, some Christians lived in times where it was illegal to be a Christian, and the punishment was death. But we in the West don't really have that problem yet, guys. So, just think about that before you're too quick to claim it's the end times here and now. I mean, all those Christians back then believed this exact same thing that most Christians do today, many with better evidence, and still ended up being wrong. So, maybe we should just try to learn from their mistakes and be a little more slow and careful when it comes to saying we're at the end or that something in our day is fulfillment of end times prophecy, like the Mark of the Beast. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want Christians 50 to 100 years from now to look back and think I was a fanatic because I thought every little thing was a sign that the end of the world has come. Though honestly, I doubt anyone will remember my insignificant life at that point besides the Lord Jesus. But I mean, also think about it. Like, somewhere at the center of this kind of attitude about Christians constantly seeing themselves in the end times seems to be pride. Like, that Jesus just has to return in my lifetime because I'm the center of the universe or something like that. But God's plans don't always have to revolve around us as individuals, guys. He doesn't have to bring it all to an end in our lifetime like we're the star of the show or something. No, in reality, he could just wait another 10,000 years if he wants to. It's not all based around us in our life. Either way, though, we just don't know for sure unless we start seeing actual emphatic signs of the times that were predicted in scripture, right? So not that I'm saying with absolute certainty that we aren't getting close, because, you know, things are getting worse at an exponential rate. Sin is becoming just grotesque. But just that we need to be careful of forcing things in our day to be unequivocal signs of the end, when they don't really match what all scripture teaches about the topic. So for example, people used to be so sure that the barcode was the mark of the beast, and then it was the RFID chip, and now it's the jab, right? But even that seems to have run its course already, since that whole thing seems to be, you know, pretty much dying down now, and most of the restrictions have lifted and whatnot. I mean, it could come back, but, you know, lots of people are backpedaling on that one too. But I mean, I'm not saying here that I'm like in favor of the chip or the jab or whatever it might be. 
I mean, I would say avoid them entirely, though for obviously different reasons. But I will go on record and say I'm not a prophet and I don't know everything. So if you just want to avoid these kinds of things to be safe or, you know, it's your personal conviction that they are the mark, then don't get them. I don't want to tell you with some kind of absolute certainty or authority that these things aren't the mark of the beast. Though I will say they don't seem to line up with what scripture tells us about the mark. Which, I mean, look, as Christians, we have to submit our view to scripture and believe what it tells us on issues like this. So we don't get to invent pet doctrines that are just above the correction of scripture, right? So let's think about these things. And so first, with the barcode and the jab, for example, you have people pointing to the number 666 appearing in the midst of a long stream of other numbers and even letters. And so with the barcode, it's actually claimed that you always have a bar that represents six on both ends of the barcode, and then there's one more bar that represents six in the middle, so that you have a 666 hidden in the midst of all these other varying numbers, right? And with a jab, there's various claims about this one, like that the letters of the virus that shall not be named, they actually add up to 66 if you add the letters together. Like if you were to count the first letter, C. Okay, C is the third letter in the alphabet, so you count three, and then you add that to the next letter, and the next letter, and the next letter, and you end up getting 66 out of that. And then the word itself is made up of six letters, and so you got 66 and six. Though I would think, since we're just doing all this random addition, wouldn't that result in 72, not 666? But whatever, you get what they're trying to do there. But another way that people will say it's 666 is that they point to the House of Representatives Proposal 6666, which had to do with mandatory testing. And then there was actually a Microsoft patent that is somehow being related to the whole thing, though I'm not really sure how. But the patent contained three prominent sixes in the midst of a long string of numbers and letters. So, you know, you can see it there. It's 060606. And then somehow A1, the steak sauce, got in there. I don't know. <laughs> so the problem with all these is what Revelation actually says. Because we always say 666, right? But John, when he was inspired by God to write Revelation, didn't say it that way. What I mean is he wrote out the number longhand. He didn't write 666. He wrote 666, like the phrase, not mere digits. In other words, he wrote three full words and not three individual numbers. Like the difference between me writing, you know, the symbol we all use to represent the number eight and then spelling out longhand the number eight, like E-I-G-H-T. John did the latter. He spelled out the number 666 longhand in Greek. He didn't just put three sixes one after another. And it was available to him in Greek to write it as just three separate digits like 666 if he wanted to. But he didn't write it that way in Greek. I mean, don't get me wrong here. I don't think like every time we change it to 666 instead of 666, it's necessarily an abuse of what John was trying to convey to us. But it definitely is when you try to say a long strand of numbers that also contains the numbers 666, somewhere in it is the mark. And I mean, it's even worse when the sixes get separated from each other, like in the example given for the jab and the barcode, because John gave the number to us as a whole number with no breaks in it. And you know what else? He could have just wrote down all these other longer numbers for us if they're the actual mark of the beast. But he didn't. He wrote down 666. And all these other numbers may have three sixes in them somewhere, but there are no 666s, you see? Because 666 can only include those three numbers and nothing else. It can't be 60,606 or 6,666 or 66 and then a 6, right? 
because that's not what John wrote, even though he could have if God inspired him to. And I mean, think about it, it also can't be this long strand of numbers on the barcode either, because again, that's not 666 because of all the numbers in between, right? So we need to stick with what John actually wrote down for us and not go off on wild goose chases just because we find three random sixes in the middle of all this other chaos. And none of these seem to have any connection to anyone's name, but John says 666 is the number of the Antichrist's name. So whatever it is, it must be somehow associated with the Antichrist specifically. And beyond that, you can buy, sell, or trade without any of these in contradiction to what John said about the mark. Even with the barcode, where one of the strongest arguments is that it's on everything that you buy at the supermarket, you can still make trades or pay cash with smaller places or individuals without any barcode transaction. Like, I can walk over to my local farmer's market right now and buy some cabbage without there being any barcodes on anything. And as for the RFID chip, even if it comes back in full force, I keep seeing them put it in people's left hand, not their right hand, and definitely not their forehead. And that one also seems to apply to the jab also. I mean, like, who's getting the jab in the hand or the forehead? Nobody that I know of. I'm not sure what connection the RFID chip has to do with the number 666. I mean, it's probably some patent number again, or something like that, which, again, it won't be exactly 666, right? It's just going to be some long strand of numbers with some sixes thrown in there randomly. Also, with these kinds of interpretations comes the idea that the mark only appears in the end times when the false prophet forces it on people. But, I mean, right before John mentions the mark, he talks about the image of the beast, that the false prophet forces the whole world to worship or be killed. So, you would think that that would precede people being forced to receive the mark if we're going to stick with the scripture at that point. Though you do also have those who claim the mark of the beast has come and gone ages ago, that is, they say the number 666 is code for Nero Caesar who was a first century Roman emperor, which this view is usually promoted by people who hold to what's called preterism, that teaches most or all of Revelation has already been fulfilled. Though if they say all of Revelation has been fulfilled like that, like that Jesus has already returned once and for all, like the second coming has already happened, that's a heresy. Though that heretical version of preterism, which is called full preterism, is more rare. You don't usually run into that one as much. But essentially how they get Nero from the number 666 is through what's called Gematria. But here's the real problem with that. Gematria is actually a form of numerology created by the occult, specifically by Kabbalah. So this is absolutely not a proper way to interpret any passage of scripture ever. God outright condemns the practice of the occult in scripture, so why would he want us to use it to help us understand scripture? And when John says calculate the number of the beast, the word can just as easily be translated as reckon or just figure out. And it doesn't mean you have to use occult numerology to determine the name of the Antichrist. Though, if you think about it, I'm pretty sure the Antichrist would love for you to try and do it that way. But you also have the problem that Gematria is utterly subjective. Meaning you can make almost any number into an important word if you try enough ciphers. I mean, look at all these results for the number 666.
Also, 666 doesn't actually add up to Nero in Greek, the language John wrote the Letter of Revelation in. Instead, people actually have to either back-translate 666 to Hebrew to get Nero, or they have to go with a different reading of 616 to even get Nero in Latin. Neither way, though, can they get Nero in the actual language that God inspired John to write the number in, which is obviously a huge problem for this interpretation and should cause us to be very suspicious of it. Not to mention, this method, just like before, also ignores that John wrote the number out longhand as 666 and not as three individual numbers. I mean, that kind of defeats the idea that John would want you to treat it like mere digits to put in some kind of cipher. Because we're talking about a long strand of Greek letters here, not just three mere digits. Which you have to turn it into the three digits to get Nero Caesar out of. But also, one of the best ways to deal with this misinterpretation is just to ask the individual who's promoting this idea where else in the Bible it's okay to use this kind of method to interpret scripture. Tell them to show you another place where the way to figure out what's really being said in the passage is to take the Greek words or the numbers there and use gematria to decode them into some hidden message. Because the vast majority of these people will definitely not even begin to try and show you such a thing because they know it's a heretical way of interpreting the Bible and they're just using special pleading in this one case in Revelation because they need it to get their case off the ground. In fact, if the person is willing to show you somewhere else they think it's okay to use this method in scripture, I would recommend you part ways with them fast because they're probably not a genuine Christian, but some kind of mystic Gnostic type that have a whole lot worse issues than this one. And so, those are just some examples of things I don't think the mark is. I don't think the mark is the barcode, I don't think the mark is the RFID chip, or the jab, or Nero Caesar. But now let's actually talk about some interesting biblical insights into the number 666 that may help us form an idea of what the mark actually is. So right out of the gate, I will say I don't think all these are equally valid, but these are just some interesting connections I've come across over the years that, you know, they may or may not help give us some insight into what the mark is. And you never know, maybe me sharing this with you, you might hear it and it might mean more to you than it does to me. And so to begin, the book of 1 Kings actually tells us how King Solomon received 666 talents of gold, and then in the very beginning of the next chapter, it tells the story of his falling away from the Lord to serve other deities. And so the number here seems to relate to gold, idols, and falling away from God. And then you have in Daniel the story of how Nebuchadnezzar creates a giant golden statue of himself and he forces people to worship it, which already sounds like something the Antichrist will do in Revelation with the image of the beast, right? And many would also point out the dimensions of the statue that are recorded as 60 cubits in height and 6 cubits in breadth, while there were 6 instruments involved in the worship of the statue. And so, you know, some people might connect those and say 666 there, right? And so again, if that's the case, the number would seem to be associated with idolatry and gold. Which, actually in relation to golden idolatry, you have probably the most memorable golden idol of all in scripture, the golden calf. Which scripture on numerous occasions refers to cows or oxen as beasts of the field. So, you have a connection to the title of the beast from Revelation here, with the golden calf, which is a beast of the field, right? And remember also that later in Israel's history, eventually two golden calf idols are set up for idolatrous worship in the kingdom. And let's remember that in Revelation 13, where the mark of the beast comes from, there are actually two beasts in that chapter, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. 
so there could be a connection there as well. But beyond that, I've heard some people point to Exodus 32-2, where it says the gold for the calf came from the earrings and the ears of the wife, sons, and daughters of the Israelites. And so then they'll say this comes out to six, since the wife, sons, and daughters each have two ears with earrings in them. So two earrings from each of these three groups would be six earrings in total, right? I mean, I personally find that one to be a tad weak, though, you know, it's still interesting to think about. But in relation to gold and idolatry, there are a few times in scripture where false deities and idols are just simply referred to as the gods of gold or the idols of gold. And so these kinds of passages could point to the number having something to do with idolatry. I mean, 666 is talked about directly after the mention of the image of the beast and everyone on earth being forced to worship it, right? So that does seem like a good connection. Another suggested connection, though, would be the Table of the Bread of Presence, where the 12 loaves of bread would be set out in the tabernacle or temple, and they're actually commanded to be set in two piles of six. And the 12 loaves are often taken to be a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, which is a type or foreshadowing of the church, so it's thought that an additional pile of six loaves would represent some kind of perversion of Israel or the church. Though, I've never come across in scripture any place where it mentions three piles of six like that, so take that with a gram of salt. But another possible consideration is that in Ezekiel's temple vision, there are three entrances. One's on the north, one's on the east, and one on the south. And then each of these entrances have a set of seven stairs that lead up into the temple mount. And then, in the center of the Temple Mount, is a higher place where the priests offer the sacrifices. And to go up to this area, though, there are again three entrances at the north, east, and south. Only this time you ascend each by a set of eight stairs. And so the implication that's being drawn from this would be that if you were to backtrack outside the temple area, you would go down from 888 to 777, which would seem to some to point towards whatever is outside God's temple as being represented by three sets of six, or 666. But another one I think is a bit stronger than those is relating the number six back to the sixth day of creation, when man was made. And by the way, an interesting fact is that the sixth day is also the day the beasts of the field were made. Like how the Antichrist and the Mark is not only associated with a man, but a beast, right? Because John himself says the Mark is the number of a man. And so because of the connection to the sixth day, many would say six is the number of man. The thrice repetition of the number, though, would be seen in two different ways. One would be that it's a Hebraism, where you repeat a word or phrase to add emphasis or importance to it. So, for example, Jesus' truly I say to you statements versus his truly, truly I say to you ones. In the latter case, he would be implying more force to the statement than normal. Or like how you have with the Apostle Paul in Galatians, how he repeated twice over his curse upon those who preach a false gospel to add severity or importance to his warning. But repeating something three times though, which is pretty rare in scripture, that would actually give it the utmost significance. So as one of the prime examples, in chapter 4 of Revelation, John speaks of how the living creatures never cease to say that God is holy, holy, holy three times over and thereby the living creatures are stressing to the highest degree the importance of God's holiness. Which then some would see a connection between this, God's thrice holiness, and the number 666 later on in the book. And again, remember, the six is taken to stand for mankind since it was on the sixth day that he was created. So then the meaning would be something like man, man, man. 
In other words, it's a boast about the significance of mankind, and a granting to man the utmost importance even over God himself. And so a replacing of the thrice holy God of Revelation 4 with the thrice prideful man of Revelation 13. Which, this then relates to the second half of this, that is, many would say one of the reasons for the thrice over-repetition of God's holiness is more than just a way to emphasize that attribute of God. Though, you know, they wouldn't deny the emphasis part, but they would also see the three repetitions of holy as denoting God's triune nature. So, each declaration of holiness would apply to one of the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so then, with the number 666, the thrice repetition of the number, which refers back to man, remember, would be symbolic of the triune man. That is, the divine man, the man-god. Which, of course, many of you are aware that it's the Antichrist that goes and sits in the temple of God and proclaims himself to be God, right? And he's not just saying he's just any old god, he's proclaiming himself to be the one true triune god. And so, the number perhaps signifies the Antichrist exalting of himself, a mere man, to the same status as the triune god, as well as anyone else who takes his mark believing the same thing about themselves, or, you know, in the least, living like they're their own god. I mean, that is what Satan tried to teach mankind all the way back in the garden, right? That they could be like god. And you see it promoted by endless amounts of false religions and cults. And so those are just some of the more intriguing biblical insights that I've come across over the years about the meaning of the number 666. Though I'm not completely 100% convinced by any of them, some do have more weight than others, especially that last one. But now let's actually go to the text in Revelation that talks about the mark and see if we can dig deeper and find more clues to help us interpret the passage. Okay, so to begin, what's one of the most important rules of interpreting the Bible? that you're supposed to interpret a verse in its proper context, right? Context is king. That's what they always say. And so that means that you read surrounding verses, chapters, and sometimes even other books to help you understand what is meant by a passage of scripture. But people got this section of scripture down pretty well, right? I mean, chapter 13 of Revelation is one of the most focused on chapters of the entire Bible, since even non-Christians are sometimes interested in this kind of prophetic and end times prophecy type stuff involving the Antichrist. It also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. But I think even though people read this one over and over and over again, they don't seem to have figured it out completely from what I've seen. Which, I admit, I don't completely understand all this either. Revelation is a pretty complex book, but let me explain something. The rule of interpreting things in context means you read the verses before and after the verse you're trying to interpret. But then somebody might say, but wait, how do you read the verses after this passage when, you know, it's the end of the chapter, like we have here in verse 18? What good would that do since John starts a whole new chapter and essentially changes the subject? Well, we do that by understanding that when John wrote this book, there were no chapters or verses. Those were added much, much later and aren't inspired in the way the actual words of the book are because John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did not put them in. And so the next chapter wasn't broken off and separated from chapter 13 in John's mind originally when he wrote this. 
And so, you know, let's just try reading ahead a little bit into the next chapter and see if we can gain any clues about this passage. Okay, so the very next verse after the Mark of the Beast one at the end of the chapter says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Wow. What do you know? That kind of sounds like the Mark of the Beast. It's God's name, like how 666 is the number of the beast's name, according to John, in the last chapter, and it's put on the forehead of this group of people called the 144,000. That can't be a coincidence, right? The fact that this seems to be the exact opposite of the Mark of the Beast, and then it comes only one verse later. And so what I think we should do is try to figure out what this name on these people's foreheads is. And maybe that will help us understand the Mark of the Beast, which is seemingly the exact opposite. Okay, so if you trace this name on the forehead of the 144,000 idea through Revelation, you'll eventually find chapter 7, where it calls the name placed on the foreheads of the 144,000 the seal of God. And the same thing in chapter 9 also. But this again, though, actually seems to heighten the antithetical or opposite nature of the mark and this name on the forehead. Because now it becomes the mark of the beast versus the seal of God. But again, what is this seal of God that John is talking about? Because maybe if we can figure out what it is, then it will help us to understand what the mark is. Well, again, if you go searching, you might eventually come across the Apostle Paul, who tells us about the seal of God in several places. So, for example, he says in Ephesians chapter 1, when you believed the gospel message of salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your salvation. And it's actually the same Greek behind the word Paul uses to talk about being sealed and the one John uses in Revelation to talk about the seal of God. But also this passage from Paul also kind of sounds like Revelation 14, where John says those who receive the mark of the beast are basically guaranteed to go to hell. So that's yet another antithetical similarity between the two. One's a guarantee of salvation, and the other's a guarantee of damnation. But then further in the book, Paul tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And in another place, Paul says that God has put his seal on us by giving us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee again. And even further, Jesus in the Gospel of John says that God the Father set his seal upon him. Now, what could that refer to? Well, I'd say it probably refers to his baptism, where the Father sent down the Holy Spirit upon Jesus as a declaration that he approved of his ministry. And so, it seems pretty clear to me that the seal of God refers to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so now that we know that, what does that tell us about the mark of the beast? Well, again, whatever the mark is, it should be the exact antithesis of the seal. That is, it's opposite. Because that's how John is portraying it, right? He pits them against each other as though they're polar opposites. One's a mark of guaranteed damnation. The other's a seal of guaranteed salvation. One is from Christ, seeing that he says he'll send the Holy Spirit to us in John's own gospel. And the other is from the Antichrist. One is placed on the forehead of God's enemies. And the other is put on the forehead of God's people. So then, what's the exact opposite of the Holy Spirit? 
Well, might I suggest that the opposite of the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Antichrist. And who was it that warned us about the spirit of Antichrist in Scripture? That would be the Apostle John, the same guy who gave us Revelation and the Mark of the Beast. Because John warns his readers that the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world in 1 John 4.3. Which, I'm of the opinion that the spirit of the Antichrist is actually Satan himself. Because Paul says something that's very similar in Ephesians 2 about Satan to what John said in 1 John 4.3. Whom he calls the prince of the power of the air. And so Paul actually says here that Satan is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And that's the spirit that will undoubtedly indwell the Antichrist, Satan himself. And so what I'm saying here is that the mark of the beast is actually the spirit of Satan or the Antichrist indwelling people. But then you might ask, what does this have to do with the name of the Antichrist? Because 666 is said to be the number of his name, right? Well, again, let's go back to the opposite for a second. What does scripture teach us that God's name is? And you might say Jesus or Yahweh or something like that. But actually, I think this is referring to something different. Not that those answers are wrong, but that there's actually many places in scripture that relate the name of God to his spirit or to his attributes. For example, he talks about his name dwelling in the tabernacle, which is an obvious reference to him dwelling spiritually in that place. Not that he'd have some kind of plaque with his name on it in there, right? And he also talks about the angel of the Lord having his name in him. I don't even know what that could mean beyond him having the spirit of the Lord in him. And then the psalmist also talks about the name of God protecting people, which how could a mere word or name do that, right? But also we have another psalm where there's a mention of God's name being near to the psalmist. Which again, both of these sound more like a reference to God's spirit than some literal name. Beyond that though, name also seems to imply the character or renown of an individual. That is what they're known for. Kind of like the old saying, he made a name for himself. And so, for example, in Exodus 33, God tells Moses he will proclaim his name before him, which, by this point, he's already made it pretty clear to Moses what his literal name is. Because take, for example, Exodus 3, where God says to Moses that he is the I am that I am. And then he says his memorial name is Yahweh forever. But what does he actually end up telling Moses in Exodus 34 his name is? Well, he tells him what he's like. He's a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and he goes on from there, but the name of God is being related to both his spiritual presence and his character in all these examples I've given. And if you think about it, ironically, those who have the seal of God, that is, those who have the Holy Spirit, begin to take on God's own character. And so we should actually expect to see that reflected negatively in the Mark of the Beast. So think about it. The spirit of the Antichrist is Satan, right? And what do we know about it? Well, he's prideful and sinful. And one other thing, we know from Isaiah 14 that he wants to be like God and steal his throne in heaven. So shouldn't we see those same desires and attributes reflected in the Antichrist himself and all those who take the mark, which is the spirit of the Antichrist? And then when you think about that, that sounds pretty similar to what I was saying about the triune man and how the Antichrist makes himself out to be God in the temple of God. But then some people would ask about John saying the mark will be on the right hand or the forehead. Like, what sense does that make if this is a spirit? 
Well, first off, remember the seal of God is also said to be on the forehead, but that one is definitely a spirit and not some literal seal, right? So keeping that in mind, I think this type of language about the hand and the forehead, John is actually drawing from a particular place in scripture, that is Deuteronomy. Because in Deuteronomy 11:18, God tells the Israelites that they're to lay up his commands in their heart and soul, which he then repeats the same instructions in a more symbolic way. That is, they're to bind them as a sign on their hand and between their eyes, that is, their forehead. And this is supposed to mean the same thing as laying them up in their heart and soul. And unfortunately, as many of you might be aware, the Jews took this a little too literally at times and tried to literally bind God's commands on their body. But that's not what he meant, right? That's just absurd to think that that's what God wanted them to do. It's obviously supposed to mean the same thing as laying them up in their heart and soul. Because actually to have the commands bound on their forehead was meant to represent how they're continuously thinking about them. And to have them on their hand points to them acting them out in their life. That is, with their head, they meditate on God's commands, and with their hands, they put them into action. But also notice that the word used here for sign refers to a distinguishing mark. And it's actually the same word used in Genesis 4.15 about the mark of Cain, which is often brought up in discussions about the mark of the beast. And so the Israelites are to have God's commands as a mark on their hand and forehead, according to Deuteronomy which equally means that they're to have them laid up in their heart and soul. And so the Old Testament background to the right hand and forehead concept that John uses to speak about the location of the Mark of the Beast in Revelation 13 entails the idea of it being placed in the very heart or soul of a person and that internal reality showing forth in their actions. And so the mark of the beast being on the right hand or forehead fits perfectly with the idea of it being a spirit, actually. But next, many people will ask, okay, well, if it's a spirit, then how can it be something that prevents people who don't have it from buying, selling, and trading, like John says in Revelation 13? That obviously means it's something external that other people can check for and see whether you have it or not. That doesn't make sense with a spirit like you're saying. But actually, I would argue my interpretation makes better sense of this, since, think about this. Have you heard of anyone lately losing their job, or being sued, or losing their social media account, or being quote-unquote cancelled for not accepting as normal a particular group that goes by a long string of letters and their sinful practices? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So, what I'm actually suggesting here is that in the last days, you'll be forced by the Antichrist, who's also called the Man of Sin, to publicly celebrate and partake in an entire world of abominations. Or you won't just lose your job or be banned on social media. They will kill you because that's what John talked about right before bringing up the mark the Antichrist having people killed for rebelling against him and his policies and of course they won't allow you to have any part in civilized society even if they don't kill you because you're a religious fanatic or a backwards dinosaur that's only a boon on enlightened mankind so unless you bow the knee and join in all their sin you'll be canceled on a level you've never dreamed of nowadays as in shut out from everything entirely no cell phone, no home phone, no credit card, no bank accounts, no job, no home, no insurance, driver's license, voter's registration, mailing address, no Walmart, no McDonald's, no Amazon, no social media, Netflix, Microsoft account, Xbox Live, PlayStation Network, or video games at all, no email, no YouTube account, no Twitter, no internet, period, no restaurants, no movie theaters, no library, coffee shops, malls, amusement parks, nothing. 
you will not be allowed to join the rest of the world until you capitulate, bow the knee to sin, and worship at the altar of the world's abominable sins. Because remember, the one who receives the mark takes on the name or the character of the Antichrist and or Satan. Because that mark is his spirit in them. And as I was saying before, the mark being on the right hand symbolizes it being not only internal, but expressed externally in their actions as well. So people will see in their actions whether they conform to the sins demanded by the Antichrist and his kingdom. Because in that day, sin will be so flaunted and shouted from the rooftop that no one will be able to hide whose side they're really on anymore. If you have the seal of God, the Holy Spirit, you will stand out like a sore thumb by the things you do and especially by the things you refuse to do. And so it does make sense still that if the mark is a spirit, people will still be able to observe you externally and see that you either do or don't have it. But what's also interesting about this perspective of mine is that by this interpretation, the mark of the beast has been around ever since John's day. Because remember he said the spirit of Antichrist was in the world already. It's just not till the Antichrist comes that people will be forced to take it or they won't be allowed to buy, sell, or trade. And another thing about this interpretation that makes it stand out above others is that it avoids anyone accidentally taking the mark or being forced to take it. Because you can't tell me, even if the mandate from the Antichrist was that people had to receive the mark willingly, that there's not going to be at least one sadistic government worker that'll hold someone down and force them to take the mark. And then that person would go to hell for all eternity for that, even if they're a faithful Christian and never had any intentions of getting it themselves, because Revelation 14 clearly says that anyone who has the mark goes to hell. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so it just makes much more sense if it's something where there can't be any mistakes like that. Because one person can't force another person to take the spirit of Antichrist no matter how hard they try. And this interpretation also avoids the idea of your innocent old Grammy getting the mark of the beast because her crazy niece on your Uncle Jethro's side of the family told her it would be good for her. And you know what? She just doesn't think all that clearly anymore, guys, because she's 95. And beyond that, she doesn't stay informed on what YouTube prophecy buffs are saying about how the newest nano eye implant is actually the mark of the beast. Because in the 832nd page of the manufacturer's warranty, the serial number for the product is 1234. 666-www.satantrickedyou.com And so this interpretation of mine makes way more sense because people can't possibly take the mark innocently or on accident from this perspective. They have to willfully reject God and go full on into a life of wickedness and depravity. And again, I want to stress, I'm not perfect and, you know, I don't know the future with certainty, but this just seems to be the stronger biblical case for what the Mark of the Beast actually is. But of course, I could be wrong, so, you know, don't run out and get like 18 RFID chips implanted in your brain without a second thought or whatever else. You still should remain skeptical about those kinds of things and remain cautious. I mean, the Mark could end up being some kind of injection or something else. I don't know with absolute certainty. I'm just showing you what I think the biblical case is for this. And I mean, for all we know, the mark could end up being the literal number 666 tattooed on people's hands and foreheads in giant font. Like, maybe there will just come a day when the majority of the world will just outright label themselves Satanists and proclaim war on the God of the Bible and willingly receive a guy who comes and says he's the Antichrist and that he's possessed by Satan. And they'll just go out and hunt Christians down to the last man until Jesus returns and stops them. It could really be that simple. Though, we do know that Scripture 
scripture says that Satan deceives the whole world and that you know he doesn't usually operate in that kind of an open way. More often he tries to trick people in doing his bidding, right? Because the eternal life promised by the gospel is just too good for most people to willingly throw it away by outright following Satan with no guarantee of eternal happiness. So people have to be tricked into rejecting God's love that he showed by dying on the cross for sin because if we'll just turn from our life of sin to Christ and trust that he alone is completely able to save us, then his death at the cross will be counted by God as our death for all the evil we've committed before his holy eyes throughout our whole life, past, present, and future even. And even more, not only will he lay our sins upon Christ to be entirely paid for, but he'll also lay upon us Christ's life of perfect obedience to him. So that just like Jacob from the Old Testament, who later gets called Israel, right? Remember the story. He came before his father Isaac, dressed like his brother Esau, with skins from the flock. In other words, the sheep, the lambs, right? He was dressed as a lamb to trick his father into thinking he was the firstborn son. So that he could receive the firstborn blessing. Well, when we come to Christ and trust in Him, we appear before the Father on Judgment Day dressed in His Son's righteousness so that we'll be perfectly satisfying before His law that demands absolute perfection so that we then earn by Christ's obedience the eternal blessing of heaven, the very blessing of heaven that Jesus Christ himself earned, and we'll spend it with a God who will spend an entire eternity pouring his infinite love upon us. So you see, that's really not worth giving up for anything, ever. So that's why I say Satan's going to have to trick people into giving it up. Because most people aren't crazy enough to acknowledge the God of the Bible is real and that he's made all these promises about the gospel and salvation and then just say, I don't care. I hate him anyways and I'm going to go to hell waging war against him and his saints. Though that may be where Satan can use ideas like Gnosticism to fill in the gaps and get people to do exactly that but not realize that they're doing exactly that. Which... I am still working on that Gnosticism video I talked about a long while back. I know it's taking forever, but it's a very ambitious project, and there's just, you know, there's just one of me, and I do have a life outside of YouTube, unfortunately, so it's still coming along, and I do apologize sincerely for how long it's taking, but in the meantime, I do hope that you'll give consideration to the insights I've provided in this video about the Mark of the Beast so that, you know, you won't be continuously caught up in the ongoing claims that the Mark has arrived in the form of this chip or that injection or whatever else. We just have to be diligent and stick to scripture and be sure to test every new claim against what scripture actually says and don't be led astray from God's word by fear-mongering. And I just want to thank you guys for tuning into this video. And if you want to hear more about the promises of salvation made in the gospel, which I discussed here briefly, I would encourage you to watch my Gospel Part 2 video, which goes into great detail about that subject and I know it will be a blessing to you if you actually take the time to watch it. And if you want more content from me more often, you can subscribe to my Christian Video Vault channel, link in the description. And I just want to thank all of you who are liking the video, sharing it, subscribing to the channel. I appreciate it. And even if you don't do any of those things, I still appreciate you for tuning into the video and watching this far. And with that, I love you all, and Godspeed.